It really is a pleasure to be here. Um, I want to thank uh, David Lyons for inviting me and Michael Farr for helping make this happen. Uh, I don't often uh, get invited to speak outside of the 5th Federal Reserve District, which is the home of the Richmond Fed, a district that extends from, as some of you may know, South Carolina up to um, Maryland. But when I do get outside the district, uh, it's a great pleasure to be in the 3rd Federal Reserve District, the home of the Philadelphia Fed, whose president, Charlie Plosser, is a great friend and a great colleague. Uh, so you're in for, I understand he spoke here a couple of years ago, so you might be in for a little bit of continuity because there's, uh, it's really rare that I find fault with his perspectives on things. That said, though, um, I'm duty-bound uh, to provide with you at the beginning of my talk, as I do uh, before every public speaking engagement, uh, the d usual disclaimer that my comments rep represent my own views and uh, do not necessarily implicate either President Plosser or any of my other colleagues on the FOMC. Um, so I'm going to talk about the economy today. Um, and to put it succinctly, uh, the takeaway message here uh, is that the economy is growing at a steadily increasing pace and inflation is low and stable. Now, as always, there's some risks that are visible on the economy, but overall it's a, a positive picture. The most striking feature of the recovery uh, that we're in the midst of is that until recently, it's been relatively slow by comparison with past recoveries, particularly those following very severe recessions, um, like the one in 1973-75, one in and the one in 1981-82, and I'll refer back to that a couple of times, those two re uh, severe receptions, recessions. Why has this recovery been subpar, so disappointing? The obvious explanation is the housing boom that preceded the recession. It's produced a housing stock that is too large, both in the number of houses and the size of the houses we have, and to some extent in the locations, relative to what households want and can afford given their current income prospects and current credit market conditions. That's it in a nutshell. As a consequence, residential investment has failed to make a positive contribution uh, to this recovery. In contrast, in those two previous severe recessions, in the recovery, housing expanded an average of 40% in the first year of the recovery. Um, so you can see how far behind we are um, in terms of the housing recovery compared to those other recessions. Now, apart from housing, other household outlays have grown relatively slowly as well. Consumer spending increased at an annual rate of just below 2% in the first five quarters of this recovery, and that's third quarter 09 through um, third quarter uh, 2010. In contrast, the other two severe post-war recessions, household spending grew by an average of 6.5% in the first year of the expansion and added thus considerably more uh, to uh, top-line GDP growth. Recently, however, consumer spending has picked up speed. Uh, personal consumption expenditures are estimated to have risen at a 4.4% annual rate in the fourth quarter of last year, uh, and that was a heartening acceleration in consumer spending. The fact that the saving rate, saving divided by income, declined at the same time as that suggests that what, what's going on is that households are seeing brighter income prospects ahead. That, that assessment is supported by a wide array of evidence that labor market conditions are improving. Initial unemployment claims have been on a downward trend since September. The unemployment rate has fallen a half a percentage point over the last two months and by more than a percentage point since it peaked in the fall of 2009. Manufacturers have added to payrolls notably over the last three months, and average hourly earnings continue to advance. Now, granted, last Friday's uh, employment report showed smaller net addition to payrolls in the payroll survey than many had expected, but there are an array of forward-looking indicators of employment conditions uh, that continue to point to continued labor market improvement. For example, the employment components of several leading business surveys, uh, such as the ISM <clears throat> or the regional surveys that a lot of reserve banks do. Uh, here in the third district, the Philadelphia Fed does an excellent business survey uh, that's available the third or fourth week of every month. These have all shown uh, increasingly positive um, readings, it, it, including especially prominently in the employment uh, component of those indexes. Um, so as I said, the recent decline in the personal saving rate also suggests that households 
have made substantial progress towards repairing their balance sheets. American households stepped up saving pretty significantly during the recession. And they used that to, to pay down debts um, and to rebuild uh, their assets, their liquid assets. That prudence, combined with significant gains in equity values since early 2009, has led to substantial improvements in, the, in our measures of the financial positions of ha- American households. Since the end of the recession, the net worth of American households has increased by something over $4 trillion. That's up substantially from the low point in this cycle. So given these stronger fundamentals, I think it's perfectly reasonable to forecast fairly robust consumer spending growth in the year ahead. Business investment is also likely to make significant contribution to growth this year. Investment in equipment and software has grown 22% since the end of the recession. Opportunities to streamline business processes and reduce costs through productivity-enhancing investments appears to be widespread. And the pickup in demand growth uh, that many firms are seeing is providing further encouragement for capital spending plans. Even investment in new structures is showing some signs of bottoming out. Commercial real estate, spending for private non-residential structures has risen slightly over the last several months. Um, People had expected a, a steady decline. And a key leading of um, a key indicator of future spending uh, commercial real estate, uh, the American Institute of Architects Billing Index, uh, something only an economist could love, I guess, has moved into positive territory for the first time in two years. So taken as a whole, it looks like business investment is likely to add significantly to growth this year. Prospects for export growth also look promising. Exports of goods and services have risen 18% since the end of the recession, adding 2% to GDP growth. And while growth in some of our major major trading partners has been uneven of late, expansion has been robust in very important emerging market economies. Uh, Thus, the demand for American exports is likely to contribute to growth in demand overall this, this coming year as well. Despite all the economy has going for it, however, there's still some substantial challenges ahead. As I said, housing activity obviously continues to be depressed. Residential investment has fallen by nearly 60% from its peak since the end of 2005. Given the large inventory of vacant homes in major markets and the ongoing foreclosure wave that continues to generate uh, forced sales in the market, any advance in residential investment is likely to be slow and uneven. Now, I'll comment on this a little more lately. The fact that the expansion before this recession in housing uh, was driven by such obvious policy flaws uh, in our housing finance policy uh, compared to past expansions uh, suggests that we this overhang could be uh, something that depresses housing activity for some time to come. Having said all that, though, residential investment is only two and a quarter percent of GDP at this time. So the damage that this sector is capable of inflicting on our economy from here on is fairly limited. All in all, then, though, I expect noticeably stronger growth in overall economic activity uh, this year. If I had to write down a forecast today, it would be pretty close to 4% for top-line GDP growth, fourth quarter to fourth quarter. A rate of growth in that neighborhood would result in continued net gains in employment and further reduction in the unemployment rate. This generally positive assessment is complemented by the benign outlook for inflation. Over the 12 months ending in December, uh, the price index for personal consumption expenditures, that's our favorite index, it's better than the CPI for these sorts of things, has risen 1.2%. The low inflation rate um, that uh, we see is more consistent with price stability than the numbers over 2% that we were seeing uh, before the uh, recession, in the years leading up to the recession. Many forecasters are expecting inflation this year to come in between one5 and 2%. And uh, I think a figure around one5 would be my expectation as well. And that would represent a reasonably good outcome, something we ought to be satisfied with. Still, recent increases in commodity prices are showing up in consumer price measures, and those are going to put overall uh, upward pressure on inflation numbers in the months ahead. Just how much is hard to say. The effect on overall inflation could be transitory, something that just passes through, or it could persist over time um, if firms encouraged by accelerating demand growth uh, pass input prices onto their customers 
uh, in a, uh, a significant way. Such pickups in inflation are actually have actually been common uh, at this point in the business cycle, and it would be consistent uh, with the prices of uh, inflation-indexed U.S. Treasury securities, where you can read off. Uh, from which you can read off financial market expectations about future inflation. Uh, those show that market participants generally expect inflation to average about 2% or a little more over the next five years and somewhat more than that, as close to 3% perhaps over the five years that follow that. Uh, so that pickup in inflation at this point in the business cycle would be consistent with market expert expectations. So that's the, the outlook in a nutshell uh, for the near term. Beyond this coming year, I think the configuration of fiscal policies could have a significant effect on our growth prospects in the U.S. We have a very serious long-term mismatch between the trajectories of federal spending and federal taxes. Most of you are no doubt aware of these projections. For example, the long-term budget projections published by the Nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office. Their most recent projections show that under current legislation and under plausible economic assumptions, deficits fall from around 9% of GDP, where they are now, very elevated level, to around 5% of GDP in 2015. But they trend steadily upward after that. The ratio of debt to GDP rises from the current level of around 60% to 150% in, in 2030. Now, be clear, there is no doubt about whether the long-run federal budget imbalance will be corrected. Continual increases in debt relative to the size of our overall income, our overall ability to pay, are just not feasible. They will not happen. So those CBO projections you see, those are false. They're not going to come true something different is going to happen. The real question is how a sustainable path is going to be achieved, either in advance by deliberately adapting policies and charting a course towards a credible strategy, or in extremis, forced by investors who retreat from U.S. Treasury debt, forced by market confidence that's collapsing to adopt drastic emergency measures, as we've seen around the globe. We would be wise to heed the abundant empirical evidence uh, of the superiority of taking action before a crisis is forced upon us. One serious risk uh, to the fiscal situation over the long term concerns the open question of the federal government's role in housing finance. This year, Washington is poised to consider the fate of our government-sponsored enterprises Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, now operating under government conservatorship. The perception that these two private mortgage intermediaries enjoyed implicit government support reduced the aversion of their creditors to large downside risks. The resulting misalignment in incentives, combined with escalating affordable housing goals that were imposed on them, drove those GSEs to accumulate significant exposure to non-prime mortgages at the height of the housing boom. <clears throat> that exacerbated the overbuilding in housing and thus contributed to the magnitude of the boom and the magnitude of the decline. Many proposals that are being floated right now would make government guarantees on home mortgages explicit and formally priced by the government. Such proposals differ mainly in the nature of the intermediaries through, the, through which such guarantees would be channeled. But perpetuating guarantees for housing-related debt will continue to artificially stimulate, stimulate the risky leverage that fueled the disastrous housing boom we've just been through. The devastating consequences of the housing bust suggest that government backstops for housing finance are not worth the price of overbuilt, over-leveraged and at times overheated housing markets, a price which comes on top of the fiscal burden of large contingent liabilities for the U.S. government. I believe we should completely phase out government guarantees for home mortgage debt. Otherwise, I think financial stability will be elusive and fiscal balance will be threatened in the future by repeated boom-bust cycles in housing. Home ownership may be a laudable social, social goal. I, I can grant that possibility. But if that's our objective, why not subsidize housing equity instead of housing debt and housing leverage? 
Let me conclude with a few remarks on monetary policy. During the recession, the Federal Reserve cut short-term interest rates to near zero and expanded the supply of central bank money, that is to say currency plus bank reserves, the reserves banks hold with the Federal Reserve. Uh, we, reser- we increased the supply of central bank money from uh, under $900 billion to over $2 trillion right now. In my view, that was an, an appropriate response to a major economic shock. In addition to that, the F- Federal Open Market Committee in November decided to further increase the supply of Federal Reserve money by another $600 billion by the end of the second quarter through purchases of long-term U.S. Treasury securities. The committee recognized that the provision of further monetary stimulus at this point in the business cycle is not without risks and therefore committed to regularly review the pace and overall size of the asset purchase program in light of incoming information and adjust the program as needed. The distinct improvement we've seen in the economic outlook since the program was initiated suggests taking that reevaluation quite seriously. That reevaluation will be challenging, though, because inflation is capable of accelerating even if the level of economic activity has not yet returned to pre-recession levels. So we've come, in conclusion, let me say that we've come through an extraordinary period in our economic history, and that in turn has brought about very extraordinary policy actions, uh, both by the federal government and by uh, your central bank. As this economic expansion continues to strengthen, the challenge for us um, becomes determining the time and the manner in which policy returns to a more normal mode of operation. The public's confidence that policy actions derive from a coherent, sustainable, long-term plan for for policy, this is both on the monetary side and the fiscal side, I think is going to be a really crucial factor Uh, in supporting growth in the years to come. And I'm hoping we see steady progress towards that goal uh, in 2011. I thank you very much for your kind attention. I just wanted to start off uh, with you all. Uh, I cover the Fed, so I'm going to have to go straight after President Lacker. Uh, President Lacker, you called for a reevaluation at this point of the Fed's quantitative easing program, the $600 billion of, of bond purchases. Uh, how will you judge whether that program should be stopped, and do you think it should be stopped right now? Uh, so I'm not ready to stop it right now, but I think um, it was widely recognized that uh, it was a close call as to the costs and benefits uh, when we adopted the program. I think growth has come in stronger, at least for me, than I was expecting over the last couple of months. I think if that continues, if we get um, some strong employment reports in the next couple of months, uh, particularly on the payroll side, that really confirm that picture of, a, of, a, of an improving labor market, uh, and we know that the pace of consumer spending is, is uh, uh, sustained at a higher level, a uh, higher rate of increase, I think that um, a reevaluation would be, and perhaps stopping it might be warranted. Um, I'm looking at the 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 fact that over the over the near term there's going to come a point where we need to start withdrawing monetary stimulus as the economy picks up and the farther the deeper we go into this uh, second round of asset purchases the farther back the starting line is for the process of winding down our balance sheet and reducing the supply of central bank money that we have out there well, so your forecast is calling for a slight pickup of inflation this year. We're clearly seeing inflation overseas, particularly in emerging markets and commodities. Mm-hmm. Does the Federal Open Market Committee, which you participate in, uh, need to start having that conversation about uh, beginning an exit from, uh, from the Fed's very easy money policies? We began work very early on on the mechanics of uh, exit on uh, the particular details and on strategic alternatives, uh, you know, ordering and and the like. Uh, So we've, a lot of thinking's gone on already as to how we would do that when the time came. I think the hard part's going to be deliberating about just when the time is, uh, has come uh, to to change course and start withdrawing stimulus. So why don't you give us all an inside view? When do you think the time is likely to come, <laughs> given given your forecast for economic growth uh, and inflation? So it's going to be sometime in the future. 
<laughs> Senator Nichols, uh, President Lacker effectively called for an end of uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac in his comments today. What are the prospects of something like that happening? Well, I think there's a lot of backtrack a little bit. Uh, Dodd Frank bill, which uh, Michael was so complimentary of, um, <laughs> totally ignored Fannie and Freddie, and that was just unbelievable oversight or or, or lack of. Uh, it, they just didn't want to take it on, and um, and they should, and they will. This Congress will. The House definitely will, and I think there's a lot of support in, in the Senate too. And um, so I think you're going to see a big change of, of uh, away from the GSEs and, and governmental support, governmental implied support. Uh, and, and some will say, well, that exacerbate the, the housing shortage or the housing problems that Michael did such a good job showing over. But, but they, they have their fingerprints on so much of it, and the cost and the exposure that we have from the federal government is so large. Uh, so I, I think you're going to – there's already hearings working in Congress, and I think you're going to see a lot of effort, and I believe hopefully bipartisan effort, to, uh, to reduce the roles of the GSEs. Should, should they be effectively ended, as uh, President Lacker uh, implied? I, I would hope so. Uh, I, I would want to go pretty far pretty fast. The Wall Street Journal was uh, early – on, on record in your editorial page about the, the possible problems of, of uh, Fannie and Freddie, um, Congress didn't pay attention, and, and it actually turned out as bad as, as you said it might uh, a long time ago. Barney Frank and, and others said, no, 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 don't touch it, don't touch it, don't touch it, and, uh, and they were wrong. And they did some other things. I didn't mention my speech, but, but on, on, on the Dodd-Frank bill that from a from a corporate standpoint, I think are just terrible. Uh, corporate governance, um, there's a provision in says, and you talk about pay and equity, there's a provision that, that says, well, we want to know what the compensation of the CEO is, and we want to know the average comp of all the employees. We want that ratio so we can stack up and, and rate all the... That's a union provision. It's a class warfare provision. It's a, it's a provision that drives board of directors nuts. And it's going to be a provision that a lot of people say, why do we want to be a public company? Mm -hmm. You know, let's go private and not have to put up with some of this. So there's a lot of, uh, when the president made his speech to the chamber and he said, yeah, we need unwarranted regulation, uh, there's a list a mile long. And, and he didn't, unfortunately, take any questions yesterday, which I, how do you go in and make a speech? I always thought that was part of the responsibility. You make a speech, you have to answer questions, you know, and... And he didn't answer a question, but I, I can tell you, being a board member and, and, and an entrepreneur, some of the provisions on Dodd-Frank are terrible. Uh, they, they are very anti-free enterprise. And, and anyway, I'll, I'll stop there. I could go much longer than you but want to go. By the way, I think we signed up a campaign manager for you and <laughs> you decide to run. So I, I want to ask you about entitlements. You spoke at length about uh, entitlements in your comments. Give us some sense, looking forward, of how you think entitlements are likely to be sure. reformed, Medicare and Social Security, and also importantly, when? When does this all happen? We have election cycles coming through. Walk us through how you think this is going to play out over the next few years. Sure. Two, two or three things. One, it has to happen, and it has to happen sooner rather than later. It has to happen as soon as possible, and all it takes is some leadership. And I, I remember talking to Clinton administration officials. We had Republican uh, in, in control of Congress said, we'll work with you. Let's do it. Let's do it on Social Security and Medicare. They didn't want to do it. And, they, and, and unfortunately, it should have been done then. And that was back in 93, 90, uh, 90, no, 95. He had control in 93, 94. Republicans got control in 94. I met with them and said, let's do it in 95. It, because it takes both houses. It takes mm -hmm. Republicans and Democrats to do it. The rules in the Senate are such, you, you have to have a nice majority to be able to do entitlement reform. But it has to happen now. We need to move away from defined benefit plans to defined contribution plans. We need to move away from, from defined benefit plans in health care to defined contribution, i.e., have the individual, the beneficiary, be, be owner, have, have input, have stake, have skin in the game. That has to happen. It's happening in the private sector. It just hasn't happened in government. Government has all defined benefits, grossly underfunded. Basically, most, most government pension systems are a Ponzi scheme grossly underfunded. If you, if you were a manager of, of an investment firm 
or a trustee, a fiduciary of a pension plan, private sector, if you did manage the federal funds as such, you'd be, you'd be in jail. Uh, they are all grossly underfunded. And I'm talking about police, fire, teachers, uh, public employees, and so on. It's, it's just terrible. And Social Security. So I, I really do hope and believe we need to move both on health care and on, on pensions, big components of, of state, municipality, and federal responsibilities that have big, big problems. They need to be moving into a defined contribution system uh, sooner rather than later. Private sector is doing it. Public sector needs to do it. Uh, frankly, aggressively, and, and, and now you're seeing governors start to talk about it. You saw the uh, the Dominici Rivlin uh, proposal talked about it. You saw the the Bowles and Simpson talked about it. So there's uh, Paul Ryan's talking about it. Uh, Alice Rivlin's talked about it. So there's there's a move. There's more consensus now that hmm, we're going to have to do something about that. We we really can't keep promising benefits in the future, not accounting for them today. And that's, that's what we're doing under these unfunded, defined benefit systems. So I, I hope that that happens. And I, I think you can you could change retirement age because they're talking about phasing it in over such a gradual period of time. You could do that tomorrow. You could, you could do a lot of things that people wouldn't even notice that would have big difference. I mentioned DN. We over-index uh, some of these defined benefit programs, Social Security and others, that, that uh, a more accurate not necessarily, Jeff. You you mentioned something not quite CPI, but you could uh, more accurate. Maybe it's maybe you take housing out, or you take some other things out for for retirees that that would save help save, frankly, the the system. And it needs to happen really quick. So, as you said, you talked about this in 1995. It's been talked about for years, and nothing has happened. Is do you see the mood in Washington changing now in a way that's likely to get this done? Uh, before the next presidential election cycle or sometime shortly after it? What are the prospects of this happening? Well, we haven't seen the president step up to the plate. I mean, he, he, he's going to have to get involved in this, too. But obviously, you have more consensus now for cutting spending in Congress than there's ever been, ever. We had big, we had big battles. I, I go back to 1981, and, and we had some spending cut, but... but uh, and, and subsequent battles many, many times. But this is very significant. There's more appetite, certainly in the House, and I think more in the Senate. Last year, just to give you an example, last Congress, last Congress didn't even pass a budget. The Senate and the House didn't pass a budget. Can you believe that? Didn't even pass an appropriation bill. Can you believe that? I mean, Congress only has a couple of responsibilities. It, it's how much money we're going to spend, how much money we're going to tax, and then pass a few other laws. Well, last Congress, they spent a whole lot of time passing a few other laws, i.e. health care and financial reform, and, but didn't pass a budget, didn't pass one appropriation bill, and, and left the taxes to be done in a lame duck session. So, I mean, I think Congress really abdicated its responsibility. Constitutionally, it has the power to tax and has the power to spend. That's Congress's responsibility. And Congress, even though the Democrats had control of both houses with enormous majorities, didn't even take up the bills. That, that was real. They really abdicated their, their role. They need to step up to the plate. And the president, to do entitlements, you have to have the president on board, and he has to do more than just a little lip service. He, he, to make it happen, he's going to have to join the battle. It, it seems like these things only happen, these budget compromises only happen when there's divided government, when you have Republicans and Democrats both in control in 86 and then in the, uh, in the early 90s. So are you uh, in support of sharing power with, uh, with the Democrats and either the, uh, well, the White House or Congress? I'm concerned now. Uh, actually, it's remarkable. You mentioned 86, and I remember what we did in 86. And the Senate was controlled by Republicans, the House by, by Democrats, and Ronald Reagan got a lot of stuff done, including the set, step two of the tax cut that took the rate at, at that time Took a 70 to 50 in the first round, 50 to 28 in the second round. Also did a lot of other things. The big deficit reduction package, though, was when Republicans controlled both houses. That's when Bill Clinton was in the White House. Republicans controlled both houses. And we passed, basically, we froze spending. And you remember the government shut down in 95. We passed tax cut in 95. He vetoed it. We passed tax cut in 97. And he signed it. The one in 97 reduced capital gains tax from 28 to 20 percent, and you had an explosion in economic activity. 28 percent. I, I have a theory that you get taxes too high, they're very counterproductive, and particularly capital gains tax. The capital gains tax is just a tax on transactions. 
And if that tax is too high, you're going to have less transactions. You get lower, and people say, hey, I'll move the money. I'll, I'll, I'll move money from this asset to this asset. And, you know, if the rate's is 20 or 15, when we reduced it from 28 to 20, economic activity exploded. If you look at Michael's uh, chart on, on GDP, if you look at 2003, when we cut capital gains tax from 20 to 15 percent, economic growth, GDP, averaged about 3.5 to 4 percent every quarter until the fall of, until the fall of 08. I mean, it's phenomenal growth in economic activity. So, and that happened. Uh, I mean, the first that happened actually, we had Republican control of House and Senate and and the White House. So, my preference would be I would love to see a Republican Senate because I, I'm afraid that it's very hard for me to see a budget that Kit Conrad's going to pass the Democrat-controlled Senate and a budget that uh, Paul Ryan's going to pass in, in Republican-controlled House seeing them come to a conference and come up with a package. Now, I hope and pray they do, but that is, it, they're going to pass a budget in the House that's going to be very difficult for Kent Conrad and the Democrats to pass. It's going to be very difficult. Michael Farr, I want to ask you a little bit about uh, putting, uh, putting your money where your presentation is. So you had uh, <laughs> a, a, a fairly uh, sobering view of the U.S. economy, but you kind of ended on an optimistic note. You seem really positive about uh, U.S. multinationals. Your son is in the audience today. If you had a million dollars for him to put away anywhere in any kind of investments in the world for the long term, where, where would you be putting it right now? You like that idea? <laughs> we had a million dollars for you to invest. Um, I, I think that the multinational stocks, John, I would certainly invest in stocks and I certainly would not invest in bonds and pretty much anywhere almost in the world in bonds I wouldn't invest in, particularly for someone as young as my son. Uh, and I would uh, stick with the, I would like those big blue chip multinationals because they're big, they're solid, and they'll do just fine over time. You know, uh, the, the hogs get slaughtered. Uh, so if you can kind of, kind of find that middle road of good solid balance sheets, I think it makes a lot of sense for that long term. I might, if I were going to be also a little bit of aggressive I might uh, look to uh, Asia and some developing markets for a little bit of that money in advising him. Uh, but uh, taking too much risk can often give you a great reward. Let me assure you that when it doesn't, you'll wonder why you ever did it. <laughs> so I, I want to ask both of you, Senator Nichols and President Lacker, about some of the comments that Michael made about this, the two-tiered nature of, uh, of this economy right now that spending, income, and wealth are all becoming increasingly concentrated in, uh, among higher-income households. Does, do you see that, and does that trouble you? I see it. Um, I, my district includes the Carolinas, and you've, you've got, um, how, um, got families down there that have been devastated over the last 10, 20 years by uh, furniture, textiles, apparel, Southside Virginia, same sort of story. And it shows up in the national data that he showed about the widening disparity of incomes between the 70s and, and now. The broad story there is really supply and demand. And it's been documented well in a great book by Claudia Golden and Lawrence Katz called The, the Race Between Technology and Education. Uh, technological developments, the innovation that we've been talking about so much today, is increasing the demand for skilled workers more rapidly than it's increasing the demand for unskilled workers. Our economy's not keeping up in shifting the supply from unskilled to skilled workers. And so the price goes up. It's simple supply and demand. That's what's driving the widening income uh, gap that we've seen. I think I, I expect it to continue to, to, to happen until we can make more progress with our educational institutions in this country. A couple of comments. One, one I, I look at the tax code, and some people look at the tax code as a method to redistribute wealth, and I, I disagree with that. And, and I kind of like to look at it as at what level of taxation can you maximize revenue. And at some points, higher taxation levels is, is, is negative on that chart. And, and, and so how can you have a tax structure that pays for what needs to be paid for and allow maximum freedom to grow? And there's a lot of reasons for income disparities and, and so on. But I, I was the person who opposed minimum wage increases for years. I, I opposed and, and still do. I think the continual extension of unemployment comp, which now goes to two years. I, when I was wrestling with it for years, we, we kept it to 26-week 26, 26 federal program, 13-week federal program. 
39 weeks. Now it's 100 weeks. I, I think that's a disincentive to work. And, and some people, oh, there, I, I know there's the demand there, but my, my point is you're rewarding people for not working. And, and I, I'm, a, I'm a free marketer, and, and I want to create a system where people can climb and grow, but not a government guarantee. I.e., I, I, there's this last tax bill that passed, and I'm supportive of most all of it because of the 03 extension, and I've covered that. There's another provision that says, oh, let's have, give a 2% uh, payroll tax cut. Let's reduce Social Security taxes by 2%. There's not one employer in the country that I know of that would hire somebody because they have a one-year uh, 2% reduction in payroll tax. It's absurd. And yet it's going to cost about $100 billion. And it was added on for income distribution tables. A lot of our income taxes were done in that way. The uh, refundable income tax credit was, oh, well, we want to do more for the lower income. But, the, but to me, that's a spending program. It's a spending program, and, and it's so open with fraud. It has like 30%, 24 25%, 30% fraud. The earned income tax credit, where people can get a one-time distribution of maybe $4,500 if somebody fills out the form. There's cheating on it like crazy. So I, I don't want the tax code to be used for re income redistribution. I want to create an environment. We've got lots and lots of problems, education, a breakdown in family, and so on. And I think there's lots of good solutions like charter schools, good editorial in the Wall Street Journal today talking about charter schools and, and people, uh, governments and others fighting against them. It should be encouraging them and, and, and educational opportunities and, and so on. There's also a, a real problem, too, in, 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 in a growing trend. I, I'm, I was in the Senate for a long time. I remember a good senator, a friend of mine, Sam Nunn, led a little group of us that meet occasionally as a prayer group, and he, he said... Do you realize the percentage of youngsters that are born in some of the urban areas that, are, that never have a dad? And in some of these cities, it's 80-some-odd percent. That's a scary statistic, and it's right next door. It's, it's in many of the big urban areas, and that is a real problem, a real problem for society, a real problem for those families, and now you're talking about second and third generations in, in that environment. So... So those things need to be addressed head first. I, Pat Moynihan brought it up years ago and got beaten up for it, but, but he is exactly right. I, I want to open this up to questions. I've got one last question for the panel. Uh, again, uh, Senator, who we've been talking a lot about uh, presidential aspirations. Who will be the Republican nominee in 2012? <laughs> in uh, 30 seconds or less, who, who, who's on your list? Well, there's a lot of people that are, I, I'm not going to touch that. <laughs> I Nichols go, is the right end. Nichols, I could, give, give, give us three, so we you can't we, you can't say you singled any one person out. Who are the, who are the top three rate horses in your race? Well, I think Mitt Romney is definitely on anybody's list. He's going to he's he's going strong. Uh, I think Tim Plenty is definitely running and running hard. And I think there's probably another dozen that that are really wanting to do it, trying to do it, teeing it up, trying to consider the possibility. It is so wide open. It's never been so wide open. Um, so there will probably be, and there will probably be a couple people we haven't heard of. Who's your dark horse? Hmm. Um, well, I mean, from a fiscal standpoint, I like, there's a lot of people I like. I mean, I'm friends with almost all of them. I think Mitch Daniels is, is, is a dark horse, uh, um, uh, but there's probably several others, too. And so why don't we uh, open it up for questions? I think we have some, uh, some microphones out there. So just throw your hands up if, you, uh, if you'd like to be a part of the conversation. If not, I'll just keep uh, asking these guys questions. Here's one over here. Yes, thank you. Uh, I'd like to ask each of the panelists to, uh, to answer this question and have a little fun with it also. If you were given a magic wand and you could wave that wand and pick the one wish that you would like to come true to help us accelerate our growth out of this recession, what would your answer be to that? What would your wish be? I'm going to impose one rule. Everyone is uh, limited to about a 30-second uh, to one-minute answer because I want to give everyone a chance to, uh, to, to answer other questions. It's what, I, it's what I alluded to, education. Um, if, if we could solve that problem, uh, that's going to yield more payoffs in the long run than anything else we can do to enhance growth. 
I would say that we would have to uh, address and cut the entitlement programs immediately and get our budget back into balance. I would say permanent tax law, inheritance tax as well as personal tax, capital gains tax, I think that would help. Uh, and I would certainly agree with Michael, uh, from, at least from a federal standpoint, this is not sustainable. And, and it's kind of scary because business knows, hmm, wait a minute, this is not sustainable, so what's coming? Is there going to be a value-added tax? Is there going to be big income tax increases? Something's going to have to happen. Uh, so permanent law on, on both those fronts. Sorry, it wasn't more fun. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do, do we have any, uh, any other? Because we have one down here. Uh, President Lack, you suggested uh, you, you, we, have, we have a mic coming to you, sir. President Lacker, you suggested subsidizing housing equity rather than housing debt. How would you suggest we do so? Um, the first thing I'd do is roll back some of the subsidies for debt, home mortgage interest deduction, uh, being a chief culprit, um, uh, subsidized um, subsidies for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac in the form of implicit government guarantees would be a second. But if you want to go beyond that, uh, there's a structure in place in the Roth IRA uh, that lets people, first-time homeowners, use some of their Roth IRA savings without a tax penalty for a down payment. I think vehicles like that are a good way if you want to encourage low-income folks or others to get get into the housing market. If you think that people aren't going to buy the socially optimal amount of housing, I'm not quite sure I, I've bought onto that premise. But if you believe that, um, that, that would be the way to do it rather than encouraging people to leverage up in their own homes. I might add that... If you look at the Bowles Simpson, they, they talked about reducing the subsidy from a maximum of a million dollars to five hundred thousand dollars in order to reduce the personal income tax rates. They also they did that in several other things, talking about hey, you can reduce the rates if you put these. If you get rid of it, how much can you reduce the rate? Uh, if you lowered it, how much can you? And they do that for for health care, which incidentally has to be done in health care in addition to housing, in, in my opinion. And if you do that on the big things, health care and, and housing, you can have a much lower income tax rate and, uh, um, and get away from subsidizing the, the, basically the inflated debt for, for housing and health care. I was wondering if you could comment, uh, Senator, on, on how you get more effective PAYGO rules passed to help control the deficit. Well, a couple of comments. One, most people don't understand PAYGO, and, and particularly the president. And I, I mean, seriously, I, I've heard him make PAYGO speeches. Oh, we're going to pay for everything. Well, wait a minute. They didn't count appropriations. So the only thing they counted PAYGO for is if you cut taxes, we're going to make you raise taxes. They didn't do it for spending. Didn't do it for anything on the discretionary side. So the $787 billion stimulus program, ah, we're going to waive that from PAYGO. Uh, they waived basically everything that they wanted to pass from PAYGO. Uh, so I'm not the biggest fan because PAYGO is usually many times used as an excuse to raise taxes but not to curtail spending. And, and, and there's a lot of budget rules. There's about, I don't know, 20 or 30 of them. I made more budget points of order in my years of Senate probably than, than anyone in, in ever. And, and uh, there's lots of different ways of doing it. But, but most of the time, it's abused. People say, oh, yeah, well, I'm for fiscal discipline. I'm for PAYGO. And I've heard that speech so many times. And then the next day, they have a bill to spend money, and it's waived. So there's lots of things you can do. And there's lots of proposals now pending to strengthen the budget rules. And it gets too wonkish in what you can do. They're talking about putting caps on, on, on spending, caps that if you exceed the caps, you're going to have uh, rollbacks and, and so on. There's a lot of ways you can do it to curtail or harness it. But the main thing, I keep going back to entitlements, but so much of the federal spending is on automatic pilot. It's law, and you don't change it unless you change the law. It takes an act of Congress to change it. Like I mentioned, earned income tax credit, and I said it has 30% fraud and waste, abuse, theft, whatever. It has, still hasn't been, you have to change the law. And guess what? There was an expansion in EITC. Why? For the distribution tables. Because we, we don't want the, if we pass these Nichols tax cuts of keeping capital gains low, well, that benefits Warren Buffett, so therefore we have to benefit somebody else, you know, to make it look good. 
what I'm trying to do is grow the economy to the maximum extent possible. And if Bill Gates is worth more as a net result, God bless him. I love Microsoft. You know, it's done a lot. Or if Steve Jobs makes more money, I love this little iPad because I can do a lot. So Apple, market cap on Apple Corporation now is like $350 billion or something. It, but it is, that's a great little product. So I, I want more products, you know, and, and so how can you have a tax structure that maximizes the growth potential uh, of the country, in, in my opinion? Budget-wise, there's a lot of things that can be done, but the standard definition of, of PAYGO is, is uh, you know, if they include discretionary, include basically all spending, you, you might be able to tighten it up, but it's not there today. But I, I think, too, that there's this still larger cultural question of, how we go from, I want it now, I need it now, I deserve it now, I want to buy myself the extra comfort. We go back to my uh, 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 cocktail waitress who says if she stops spending, she's going to stop shopping, stop living. We're not hearing anything different, uh, that much different out of Congress when they want to buy by PACO. I mean, this, is, this really transcends all levels of our culture, all all through uh, our, our socioeconomic fabric at this point, we're spending and nobody wants the discipline. Senator, you said we needed leadership. We can solve this with leadership. Where's the leadership for this group that says, well, we're going to suspend PAYGO on this one and go ahead and spend? That leadership seems to be an awfully short But, but I think maybe it's coming. I, I think this last election was the biggest referendum on trying to curtail the growth of spending ever. And, and uh, we're going to see, you're going to see more battles in this Congress. And, and I'll tell you, teed up very soon. I mentioned the continuing resolution expires March 4th. You're also going to have a debt limit extension probably closer to May or June. There's going to be big, big battles over that. That's the leverage that Republicans, oh, President Obama needs to sign something to pay, keep government going. So he needs their signature. Uh, we can't, or the Republicans can't pass a law that says, hey, we want to reform COLAs on Social Security. He said, I don't want to do it. Um, Harry Reid's already said he didn't want to do it, didn't want to touch Social Security. So it takes House and Senate and the President to, to do those things. They do have leverage on him on debt limit and on the, the continued resolution, so maybe you'll see some progress. For, for, the, for the undergraduate in the room, I would like to hear from, from each of you. When, when should the undergraduate in this room today expect to be able to be eligible for Social Security and Medicare benefits? Right now it's 65 going to 67. Let's give them some forewarning. What should, what should they expect? I think, you would, I think you'd be much better off putting money into your Michael Farr con, uh, <laughs> investment account and making a decent I, I have some business cards, Senator. It just happens that... No advertising. I just, I, let's hear a number. Does it? Does anyone the rate want to age say? is going to go up? It, it, as you mentioned, part of the I believe, can't remember what year we did it. Uh, increase the retirement age up to age sixty-seven. It will be increased again, probably to. I think the proposal under Simpson Dole was to move it up another couple of years, but they did it over forty years. And I said, my gosh, you guys are taking forever. That's too long. Phase in, in my opinion, but I, I think it'd be increased at least a couple of years. We have a, a question back here and another one up here. Yeah, I was wondering if you could expand a little bit on this idea of education. It's my understanding that we spend a lot on education as a nation, so we're really not behind in that area. I know in the state of Delaware, I think we're seventh in our educational system, at least at the, at the secondary school education level, leaves something to be desired. So I just want to know your comments on the fact that, obviously, it's well-funded, but we never seem to make significant gains in increasing the, the education, especially a lot of foreign workers coming here to work as well. It's a really good question. Um, first, I, I'm not a specialist in uh, area of economic, ed, economics of education by any means, um, but my understanding of the recent literature in that area suggests that um, sort of non-school inputs, parental inputs into... Um, uh, education are very important after how you know culture of the home after school and the like, and in particular the early childhood years has gotten a lot, a lot of attention in the last couple of decades as well. Um, how, strategies for addressing that would include um, sort of subsidized providing rich um, cognitive environments for four and five year olds um, 
outside the home. Um, and also, you know, educating parents is the important is just talking to your kids early on. Uh, there's some really powerful evidence on that. Um, and uh, I, think, I think working on the whole package of inputs into education, not just the part that's fu- funded, you know, K through 12 public school, I think that's, um, and I, I think you're right, we've spent a lot, but we seem to have hit marginal, you know, sort of decreasing marginal returns there. I would add a couple things. One, I mentioned breakdown of family, but you'll find that kids that have two parents in the home do much, much better, astronomically better. I also think we need more school days. Uh, we don't have near the school days that Asia and some other countries do. Uh, you know, we're off most of the summer and so on. We need more school days, maybe longer school hours. And we need more innovative things like charter schools and, and so on to, to really innovate and move. And, and we need to... I, the, Teachers' unions grab a whole bunch of the money and, and don't give the flexibility for the districts and so on to really grow in many cases. I think we had a, a question back here. As many of you touched on, it appears that the next impending crisis is the whole municipal um, health care pension obligations, all of that. Delaware, along with many states, chose to duck it last year. Uh, Other than cloning Governor Christie and passing him around to 49 other states, what do you recommend? Seriously? (laughs) (laughs) I don't talk about it. You're you're not Meredith Whitney. You're the one. (laughs) Um, It's a hugely broad question. Um, because when you, when you look at the unfunded pensions and, and benefit programs for the states, I mean, that's, that's the biggest piece of, of, of the pie and the biggest piece of the problem. Um, I, I think uh, that somewhere the same sort of responsible leadership has to come into play and say, look, we can't. Uh, spend more. We've got to take the Chris Christie approach and say we can't spend more than we're taking in and we have to do it. You know, the, the, the line that's kind of scariest that I've heard over the past couple of years, and I can't remember, I don't know if it was a Rahm Emanuel line, I think it wasn't, but you know, let's be careful not to waste a good crisis. Yeah, that was it. Was that Rahm? Yeah. Uh, it, it, the scary part about that is, I think we did. I think we did waste a good crisis. And the second scary part about that is when we keep looking for this leadership, if I had to bet on the leadership actually getting this done or the efficacy of another crisis, my money's on the crisis. I, I want to kind of give an interesting product of, of that. You're talking about uh, taxes against bonds and so on. I happen to be on the board of, of one, but I a little different. In my universe of tax overhaul, I'd like to tax all income once. That means there wouldn't be tax exempt bonds. And I know the cities and, and others are, oh, cry, cry, cry. But the difference on taxable bonds and non-taxable is not great right no. now. And why have, why, why say, hey, wait a minute, we're not going to tax that income, but we're going to tax other income twice. Tax do- corporate dividends twice. Tax a lot of, you know, have... So any, anyway, just a general thought. You can broaden the base by saying, hmm, there's a lot of income that's not taxed. Taxes and bonds, for example. And, and so just another little thing is somebody would say, oh, you're going to make things a lot worse. But I think you could really lower rates if you put more things on the plate. So you broaden the base and you could get a much lower rate. And then you'd have a much higher humming economy. 